Morning, everyone. How's it going? Good to see everyone. If you have a Bible or a phone, don't you want to open it up uh, right away to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16? That's where we're going to be uh, this morning, 1 Samuel 16. Um, if you don't have a phone or Bible, I think the verses will be uh, up on the screen behind me, but it'd be good for you to have it uh, in front of you if you can have it there. Uh, like Tona said, we're starting a new series on the life of David. Let me just give you some headlines around how this is going to work. We're going to be in it for um, a good couple of months. We're not going to look at everything in the life of David. Okay, David's life is an interesting life. Uh, there are very few people in the Scriptures who, have, who, who we have as much detail about as David. Uh, he's, one of, he's a standout person in, in the Scriptures. Next to Jesus, we probably know more about King David than we do about anyone else, maybe Moses, but, um, and, 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 maybe, and maybe Paul. Uh, so David's life is incredibly significant. It's shaped Christian history. And so whilst we're not going to look at everything, we're going to look at most of the key events in his life, particularly the relationships that David has with different people and how they revealed more of God to him, how they shaped him, and how they transformed him. Um, if you have in any way a slightly dysfunctional family, uh, which is pretty much everyone, isn't it? Okay. Um, some of you are sitting next to your family, so you're just like eyes down. Like uh, uh, You'll find a home and a friend in, in David because he had a properly dysfunctional family. He was slightly dysfunctional, so if your family are normal and you're the dysfunctional one, you're also going to find a friend in David. Um, there's so much uh, good that's going to come to us through studying this, and I'm praying that God will speak uh, and shape us and transform us. So let me read. Um, this uh, passage we're going to look at this morning, and then pray, and we're going to dive into it. So First Samuel, uh, we're going to read um, up to um, verse 13 of chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected for myself a king from his sons. Samuel asked, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord answered, take a young cow with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will let you know what you are to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. Samuel did what the Lord directed and went to Bethlehem. When the elders of the town met him, they trembled and asked, Do you come in peace? In peace, he replied. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Conse consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, Certainly, the Lord's anointed one is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his stature, because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Jesse called Abinadab and presented him to Samuel. The Lord hasn't chosen this one either, Samuel said. Then Jesse presented Shammah. But Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. After Jesse presented seven of his sons to him, Samuel told Jesse, 
The Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Samuel asked him, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, he answered. But right now he's tending the sheep. Samuel told Jesse, Send for him. We won't sit down to eat until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him. He had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Then the Lord said, Anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. Then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. Let's pray together. Father, as we begin this, um, this journey uh, looking at the life of your servant, David, we acknowledge again, like we do every week, that we don't have the abilities within ourselves outside of you to see what we need to see and to hear what would be good and helpful for our hearts and transformative for our lives. May we remain so desperately in need of the help and the revelation and the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit amongst us. We thank you that you speak life-giving words to us, and we pray again this morning that as we look at this passage, this account that's so familiar to many of us, that we would see what you want us to see, that our hearts would be receptive to hear from you, that through my words we would hear your voice, and that you would transform us. Thank you that we don't gather um, week after week and, and preach sermons and listen to sermons because we've got nothing better to do. We fully believe that this is how you, our Father, one of the primary ways in which you speak to us and you transform us through a living and active word. And so we come and we posture our hearts and our lives before you this morning. So would you please speak, Father, would you come and reveal your heart and your ways to us? And through the presence and the power and the ministry of the Spirit, would you change us? Would you strengthen us? Would you pour out grace on us this morning again? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, obviously, this is the account of the anointing of David and the majority of the uh, story centers around that. Are we going to get there? But there are a few things that I want us to see. Uh, in this account, before we get to David, um, I'm, I'm familiar with this passage. I don't know if like you have, you've read it multiple times, but as I spent more time in it uh, more recently, uh, I saw a few things that actually related to Samuel that I think we need to look at before we get to David. Um, they're very helpful. Let me give you some context because we are diving into the middle of a book uh, here, which is obviously not my preference, but we're doing the life of David, and I didn't want us to do First Samuel, Second Samuel. Uh, First Kings, Second Kings, Chronicles—like you know—we'd be with David for eternity. Um, we will be with David for eternity. Uh, I'm getting distracted. Don't laugh at my distracted jokes that don't help me stay focused. The focus here, the context in First Samuel is this: that Saul has been anointed the king, that the first king of Israel. The people wanted a king. Uh, God didn't really think they needed a king, but relents to their request. They want to be like all the others. And so Saul is chosen as the king. Saul is an impressive individual. It says that he is literally a head taller than everybody else. A head taller. He's like the Ibn Etzebeth of Israel. If you don't watch rugby, 
Um, I don't know what else to do for you. Um, who's that wrestler, The Rock? Well, I mean, if you don't watch rugby, you probably don't watch wrestling either. He's just an impressive person. He stands quite literally head and shoulders above the rest of the nation. That's partly why uh, he was picked. He's the most impressive guy in the nation, but he loses his way. He turns out to not be a good king, and we find ourselves at the beginning of 16. If you just flip back in your Bible to chapter 15, God has rejected Saul. He has now fully and finally rejected Saul as the king over the people because of Saul's disobedience. God has given Saul very uh, specific instructions about what he's supposed to do, and Saul has done most of them, but not all of them. And God ends his patience with Saul, and he's like, I've rejected you as king over these people. And Samuel and Saul have an interaction, and Samuel basically leaves Saul, never to see him again. And Saul is back, um, Samuel is back home, dejected, confused. Now the people don't have a king. They have a king, but the Lord has rejected this king. Samuel used to be the judge of Israel before they had a king. Samuel is a man who deeply, deeply cares about the people of Israel. And he's sitting at home, and he's wondering what is going to happen to these people. The king that they had has been rejected by God. What is going to happen to, him, uh, to them? And there's two things that are happening in Samuel that I want us to look at because I think we connect so much with them uh, as we go through life. The first thing, uh, and I've phrased them in this, that there are two obstacles uh, that we can encounter in life that can cause us, that can be obstacles, that can cause us to trip over them as we seek to do uh, what God has asked us to do or follow God faithfully. The first one is grief slash disappointment. Grief or disappointment about how things had turned out. Samuel had been the one who had anointed Saul as the king and had walked a road with him. I think he had great hopes for this king. He had great hopes for the people. And here he is, he's sitting at home, he's dejected, he's disillusioned, he's burdened for his people. He's like, what will, what will come of these people? What will happen to them? I'm sure he had great hopes that this would have turned out differently. Surely this would have been different. The people with the king saw this shouldn't have gone like this. Saw you should have obeyed. This should have turned out differently. There's grief. Disappointment. He had hoped. And you see it right at the beginning. The Lord comes to Samuel and what does he say? How long are you going to mourn for Saul since I have rejected over him as king over Israel? Samuel, how, how long are you going to sit around at home moping and grieving about this king that I've rejected? How long are you going to sit around at home having a pity party, just lost in your sorrow about how things have turned out? And guys, this is the first thing that we connect with. If you, if you haven't walked with Jesus for a long time, here's an advertisement that more than likely at different points in your life, things are not going to turn out the way you hoped. Some of you are sitting here this morning thinking, I haven't walked with Jesus that long. I'm there. My life is not turning out the way I'd hoped. And this, this affects all of us in different ways. Some of you had hoped to be uh, married by now, and you're still single. The Lord's overlooked you. You thought you, you're struggling with grief. Has God 
God, God's got other favorites. I'm obviously not one of them. I wish my life had turned out differently. Some of you ended up getting married, and marriage has turned out a bit differently than you thought it would. You're kind of longing that you were the other side of marriage. Marriage is way harder work than you thought. Some of you were longing to have kids by now. You don't have kids yet. Some of you have kids, and you're thinking, man, where do we go and deliver? We drop these things off somewhere. You know, this is way tougher than we thought it was going to be. And on and on and on it goes. Maybe you thought you'd be further down the road in your relationship with Jesus. You wouldn't still now, after all these years, be struggling with the same things. Surely you would have made some progress. Surely the Lord would have helped you, given you victory, and, and strengthened you in your ongoing sin struggles. Surely you wouldn't be struggling over the same things now. Surely your work life would be different. Surely there would be greater harmony in your family. We could go the whole morning. Guys, life turns out differently to how you expect. And how you deal with the disillusionment and the disappointment and the grief says a lot about what you think about God. And it's a means of God's grace to transform you. And here you find Samuel and he's just sitting around at home grieving. He's not getting on with what God's asked him to do. And God has to come to him and shake him and arrest him and say, hey, how long are you going to just sit around grieving? How long are you going to feel just crushed by this disillusionment, this, this disappointment about how you hoped things would turn out? They haven't turned out that way. And God in his kindness comes to Samuel. I'm not talking about the obvious process of the grief, uh, the essential grieving steps that we need to go through when we go through trauma and loss and those things. We need to. That's how we're built as humans. We need to go through those things. I'm talking about uh, when we get stuck, when we get stuck, and maybe it's just this morning the Lord's coming to you to get you unstuck, to say, how, how long? How much longer are you just going to sit longing and hoping and holding God, uh, holding it against God that your life hasn't turned out exactly how you would have hoped? He comes to you and says, how long are you just going to sit there? That's the first thing you see in Samuel. The second thing you see in him is fear. This is the second obstacle. What does God tell him? He says to him, uh, in verse 1 into verse 2, fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I've selected for myself a king from his son. Samuel asked, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. Samuel knew uh, Saul. He knew what he was capable of. He knew the temperament of this guy. This guy had anger issues. He knew what Saul might do because Saul is technically still the king. The Lord has rejected him and he's told Samuel this. But Saul still thinks he's the king. He's still acting like the king. He's still in the position of the power of the king. Samuel's like, there's no ways I'm going somewhere else to anoint another king. That finds out, about it, finds out about it. I'm done. He will kill me. And so he's like, gives God like a hard pass on that. Like, no thanks. You can send another prophet. I'm like, I'm happy at home. Yeah, and moping around in my pity party, uh, my sad situation. The fear grips God's prophet. And he says, how can I go? Saul's going to hear about it and kill me. This is his first response, is to just look square at his fear, not at God, square at his fear and say, no, I can't go. He'll kill me. Maybe for some of you this morning, you recognize this and you're connected with Samuel in this, that you understand what God has asked you to do. 
there's not a lack of clarity about the steps God is asking you to do in your own life, be it in uh, character development, in a, just any area of your life. Following Him, a call, obedience, and it's fear. It's the fear of what it would cost you to obey. You've done the maths. You've, you've got it all figured out. You know what it's going to cost you to obey, and you're too afraid to obey Him wholeheartedly and fully. You dabbling with obedience. You are dabbling with obedience. And let's bounce back quickly here to Saul. Uh, we don't have time to read the whole story, but the story uh, that really pushes God, as it were, over the edge with Saul is him sending him to wipe out the Amalekites. We're not going to get into all of that. We'll get into it further in the life of David. To wipe them out. He says, leave no living thing. Leave no living thing. And what does Saul do? He doesn't listen. They kill most things, but they take the best of the animals and the best of things, and they go and sacrifice to the Lord. And then he blames it all on the troops. He says, well, these guys took them all. I didn't really have anything to do with it. They all took it, and we're going to go and have a big sacrifice. We're going to go and sacrifice to the Lord your God. We're going to go and have a big worship service with all of these amazing cattle. Look at them. Like they, we, God's going to be so stoked over this massive worship service that we're going to have with all the stuff that we've taken. And Samuel says to him, but that's not what God told you to do. God told you to kill everything, not to take the best and use it to sacrifice. And he says to him, to obey is better than to sacrifice. To follow what God has told you to do is better than to come up with your own plan of what you think would be better. What you think God might find impressive is secondary to obeying what he has clearly instructed. And that's one of the things that causes Samuel to be fully and finally rejected as the king. Samuel knows this. So whilst he's battling with his fear, he knows God enough. And he does obey. He, does, he lifts his fear to God. And notice that his fear doesn't evaporate. God in his kindness makes a way. He says to him, okay, well, take a, take a cow with you and tell them you're going to go and sacrifice. He's got like a cover as he's going to Bethlehem. God is just so kind to Samuel. He's like, I'm scared. If I go there to anoint the king and Saul finds out about it, gone. I'm done. He says, God says, okay, fine. Take a cow and like, tell them that you're going to go sacrifice and don't worry, I'll explain all the rest when you get there. And in the middle of his fear, Samuel still obeys. You don't need to only obey God when you have no more fear. When everything is clear, the rest of your life, all the next decisions that follow the first step of obedience are all clear. All the lights on the runway have lit up. No ways. God says, you follow me and you take one step of obedience and then you take the next step of obedience and then you take the next. And you, in the midst of your fear, be strong and courageous for I am with you. Isn't that what he said to Joshua when he called them to lead God's people into the promised land? He didn't say, this is going to be a cakewalk. This is going to be so easy. They're all just going to run. It's going to be so easy. Don't stress about it, but I've got it covered. God would never use that kind of language. He doesn't call anyone but, but I do because I'm not him. And I transliterate the Bible all the time for myself. He didn't say to him that. He said, the spies come back from the land. They are like giants. We were like little grasshoppers in their side. It's terrifying that side. So what does God say to Joshua? Be strong and courageous. I am with you. And I will give you the victory. 
you're still going to be afraid. Guys, some of, the, some of the steps that you have to take in obedience, you take with your knees knocking. You take with your heart pounding. You're still afraid. And the call is to be strong and courageous to follow because obedience is better than any other concocted sacrifice or anything else that you can think of that would please God. All God is asking for is wholehearted obedience to what he's asking us to do. The Lord comes to Samuel in his mercy and he gets a hold of this prophet and he says to him, how long are you going to sit here grieving? I want you to get up and go. I want you to take this horn of oil and I want you to go to, to Jesse of Bethlehem and I want you to anoint one of those boys as, as the next king. And what happens? Wonderful line there. It says, Samuel goes. Samuel goes. <laughs> he goes. He gets up and he takes his horn of oil and he goes. He does what God has asked him to do. And we'll fast forward in the, in the story he goes to Bethlehem. The elders get wind of this. They hear Samuel's coming. They're like, why is Samuel coming? Samuel wasn't in the habit of making like pastoral visitations to all the villages kind of thing. Like they know like God's judge. Is there something I said that was upsetting all the kids all of a sudden? Was it just they were all just like synchronized? Okay. That was a lot in, in like 10 seconds. I love kids. I don't hear the crying, but I can see your faces here. The elders hear that Samuel's coming, and they're like, let's, let's send some guys out there to like, just ask, like, are you coming in peace? Or are you coming to like, give us one of those woe is you, Bethlehem, zapper, you know, like flames and thunderbolts and lightning kind of thing. They send out guys, like, are you coming? He says, I'm coming in peace. I'm coming in peace. Let's, let's, get the, let's get everyone together, consecrate yourselves, and he consecrates Jesse's family. And then they, uh, they start this uh, process of the selection. And who stands, be, who does Jesse bring to stand before Samuel? Eliab, his oldest son, Eben Etzebet, number two. Bucky's Boete, if you're a bit older. The tallest, the oldest, the biggest, the obvious choice. Surely it's this oak. It's the oldest one. It's the most impressive son. It's got to be this guy. And what does Samuel say? If you have ever been discouraged by how slowly you learn things in your relationship with the Lord. Here is something for you to be encouraged by. Here is God's prophet who is a slow learner. This is Samuel. This is how slow he is. He's just had, he's just witnessed the head and shoulders above the rest of the nation. Guys, life goes sideways and get rejected by God. Now he's appointing a new king, anointing a new king, Eliab stands before him, and what does he say? Surely the Lord's anointed stands before him. Surely this is the oak, the most impressive, oldest, a shoo-in. And what does the Lord say? Nope. I've rejected him. It's not him. Oh, okay. Next one. Definitely this one. Nope. Next one. Nope. Seven times. Seven nopes. Any more sons? Any more sons? What I meant is that encouragement, like, it took a while for Samuel to get this, that the Lord works differently to how we work. And, and Samuel's eyes lied to him the first time, and you would think he'd get it. This time standing before Eliab, but he doesn't get it. Guys, we grow and we change slowly. We learn things slowly. Don't be so discouraged that you don't have it all together yet. You and Samuel in the same WhatsApp group, keep going. 
Eventually, David arrives. He's not even there. That's how unimportant David was in the scheme of things. He doesn't even get invited to the party. He's out looking after the sheep. And before you think that that's a glorious occupation, it's not. It's like you're the youngest, go and look after the sheep. Anything important happens, you don't even get invited to it. This feast of consecration, you don't even get invited. Doesn't even get... Samuel's like, have you got any more sons? Yeah, this young guy looking after the sheep. He says, okay, well, we're not going to sit down. We're not going to do anything until he gets here. And eventually he arrives and the Lord says to him, this is the one. With his beautiful eyes and his healthy, handsome appearance or whatever, however he's described. Anoint him. And remember this. Remember this for future weeks. It says that Samuel anoints David in the presence of his brothers. You're a note taker, write that down. Because it's important. His brothers see what happens. This guy gets anointed as the king in front of their eyes. And it's going to play out in future weeks. Verse 7 is a critical verse that this whole narrative turns on. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look at his appearance or his stature because I've rejected him. These other brothers. Humans do not see what the Lord sees. For humans see what is visible. But the Lord sees the heart. I want to spend a couple of minutes answering two questions here. How we see and how the Lord sees. Because this is what the Lord is saying to Samuel. He says, you see, you see and you assess things completely differently to the how I do, Samuel. And it's massively important for us. How, how do we see, firstly? Well, we, we're like Samuel. Outwardly, we, our eyes light us. We're impressed with outward appearance. We are, we are part of a world that is obsessed with what you look like. This shouldn't be news to any of us, should it? You just need to go buy a magazine of something. They only put beautiful people on the cover of magazines. Well, like, or like airbrushed people. They may not be initially beautiful, but by the time they get to the front of the magazine, they look pretty impressive. You know? The only magazine, I was telling this with Dave, the only magazine that I think they just put average people on the front of is the Farmer's Weekly. You know, Yannick can be on there in his court brook talking about mealies, and it doesn't matter what he looks like because most of the people buying that, they don't care. But every other magazine, the only, we only put the beautiful people there. We only celebrate good-looking people. And if you do a Google search for the industry, um, the amount of money that's made in the anti-aging industry, it will, it will shake you. Our, our culture, the world we live in, are terrified of getting and looking older. That's the worst thing that can possibly happen to you, is that you look your age as you get older. The worst thing that you get wrinkles or gray, all the gray heads are busy um, um, running their fingers through what hair they have left. Uh, you know, that's the worst thing that can happen to you, is that you can look old. The people that we celebrate the most these days are old people who look young. I was reading an article the other day about a 64-year-old crossfitting granny. I mean, this lady is like, she's ripped. I mean, I'm not going to go too much into it. Like, I didn't spend a lot of time reading the article. Don't, don't get too concerned yeah. But, I mean, she's more ripped than Tono. You know, more ripped than I would ever be in my wildest dreams. She's 64. And everyone's like, amazing, amazing. And I'm like, it is quite impressive. I mean, you obviously sell your soul to lifting weights and doing all this kind of stuff. But it's just like, it's this kind of like we glorify um, beauty. 
And eat, the older you get, if you can retain your beauty, we celebrate you even more. Heaven forbid you should look your age or look average. That's why things like Instagram and all those other things, they've got filters. Because heaven forbid, even Zoom's got a filter. So you don't look like you actually look. You know, it's to touch up your appearance. You've used that before. Some of you have. Don't lie to me. Some of you have, have used that. We're obsessed with what people look like. We were on holiday uh, a couple of years ago at the West Coast National Park. I was playing bat and ball with Jono on the beach, and this group of friends arrived there, three of them, and they started uh, just chilling on the sand. And next thing, the one auntie lost almost all of her clothes uh, and revealed a bikini that was made out of what I can only describe as it looked like packaging. It looked like stuff that had ripped off something that used to house something that was sub substantial, and now it was like not substantial. And that was her bikini kind of thing. And she started taking, doing all these kind of exotic poses and stuff on the beach, and the cameraman, after every shot, she would wander over to the cameraman and have a look at what the picture looked like and berate the oak for like getting it all wrong in the lighting and go back again. And the, 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 the poses got more and more exotic. Next thing, she's crawling across the beach. And I'm trying to point at like everything under the sun for John. It's like, ah, unicorns, unicorns on the water, you know, like distracting him kind of thing. It led to this long, this long debrief with this, with this guy around the world that we live in and how obsessed people. That's the only reason they came to the beach was to take photos that are getting uploaded somewhere. I don't know if she's an influencer or popular or I don't know who she is. Uh, but they didn't have any fun. And after they took the photos, they left. Hashtag great day at the beach. Lovely. I'm like, you, I am, you didn't even build a sandcastle. You didn't go near the water. This is a lie, man. But that's how the world is. What we see with our eyes lies to us. And we get caught up in wanting to impress others in how we look. But more than just that. It gets deeper. We want to impress people, but how we behave. Because some of us, let's just be honest, are never going to be on the cover of anything. But we want to impress people by how we behave. We want to be seen to be good people. Whether or not you are or not, whether or not your character actually is equivalent to how you want others to perceive you, it's important that we, uh, for us that people think that we're good people. Brennan Manning, who wrote a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel, which you should read, he said this, the temptation of the age is to look good without being good. It's the temptation of the age is to look good without being good. It matters more to us that people think that we're good people rather than our hearts are truly and genuinely transformed by the love and the grace of Jesus Christ, and it gets more messed up for us uh, as Christians, because it's not just a, like a secular behavioral thing. There's a layer of added pressure to on us who are Christians. You come to church, and it matters to us how other Christians perceive us, that we are seen to be good Christians, that you have your act together, that you've got your stuff together, that you sing energetically. That if someone asks you to pray, that you can pray with fire. That you actually have a Bible and you read it. And you're seen to be a, a Christian who has their stuff together. I've been a Christian long enough to know that in my own life and in the lives of others, 
we are experts at pretending. Christians are professionals at pretending that things are not the way they truly are. In Matthew 15, verse 7, Jesus says this, You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Guys, it's, it's so easy to honor God with your lips where your heart is just far away. And I don't want you to sit here crushed by the weight of that, but rather to acknowledge that that's a reality. That sometimes you'll sing the top of your lungs, but you know, you know that your heart is miles away from where it should be, or even where you long that it would be. And you find a home here in the Scriptures, and the call of the Gospel is to move away from pretending to embracing the reality of who we are and where we are and allowing the Gospel to come to bear on that. Because that, friends, is who you actually are. And that is exactly where you are. And that's where God is interested in meeting you and moving you. Not leaving you, meeting you and moving you. He's not like, I just chill, don't worry. It's fine. I love you. You're just my favorite. It's fine. Your life's jacked up. You're mired in sin. It's cool. He's like, no, I'll meet you there, but we're going to move. God's not interested in leaving you and others where they are. He meets you where you are to move you to where you need to be, where he longs for us to be. That's how we sing. We get distracted with our eyes and we pretend. How does the Lord sing? Well, very simply, it just says that the Lord sees the heart. The Lord looks through all the pretending. The Lord looks through all the filters. The Lord looks through all the posturing and all the outward stuff. And he goes, and he sees our lives and our hearts just laid bare before him. Paul Tripp defines the heart as the causal center of who you are. So don't overcomplicate it. It's not just your emotions. It's like body. You have a body and you have a heart. When the Bible speaks of a heart, it's like that's who you are. That is the, the sum of who you are. It's your, your heart. And the, and the Lord says to Samuel, the Lord sees the heart. Your life is just laid bare before him. There's nothing that you think, feel, say, or do that is a surprise to God. He sees it. He sees not just activity. He sees the motivations behind the things that we think, feel, say, and do. What does the Lord see in David as he's looking at his heart? What does the Lord see in David? Well, in Acts 13, if you're taking notes, Acts 13 verse verse 22, Paul is preaching. And uh, just diving into sermon here, verse 22, it says, After removing him, speaking of Saul, he raised up David as their king. And God testified about him. I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart who will carry out all my will. I have found him to be a man after my own heart who will carry out all my will. That's an amazing testimony that God has over David's life, isn't it? Now, it'd be super easy for us to end. Some of you might be thinking, please, Lord, to end then, to end now, and for me to say, go be more like David. Go be more like David. Get a heart that's after his heart and do everything. Carry out all of his will. Be more like a David. But the Bible is tricky, and the Bible is very complicated, and David is complicated, and so are you and I. 
because David had a heart after God and he had a heart after his neighbor's wife. Both of those things are in the Bible. I didn't come up with it. They're both there. They're recorded for us to see. The Bible is at great pains to not polish anyone other than the person of Jesus Christ. And all of David's failings we are going to dive into because they reveal something about us and about God that you don't see when you just try airbrush the characters of the Scriptures. It says that David has a heart after God's own heart. That's an amazing statement. But the reality is that David also had a heart that was after his neighbor's wife and led him down some really crooked and dark paths. Your life is complicated, and you are a complicated person. And you can love Jesus with all of your heart and soul and strength on a Sunday morning. And on Sunday evening, you can be tripping over your own sin and wondering, do you even belong to Jesus? That's how complicated you are. So what will you do? What will you do? Our hearts need help. The Lord says in Jeremiah 17 verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. It lies to you and it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, let's listen to what David prays in Psalm 86. Psalm 86 verse 11, David says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Your translation may be different. It may say, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. God, would you pull together the different parts and the longings of my heart and pull it together to love you and to fear your name and to go after you. Guys, that's, that's what you need. That's what each one of us need this morning is the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you to bring back the wandering parts of your heart together. He'd make you wholehearted followers and lovers of Jesus. And then tomorrow, you need the same thing again. And then on Tuesday, you need the same thing again. You live in desperate dependence on God, uniting your heart, uniting your heart, uniting your heart, forgiving you for when your heart wanders away to other things, allowing our eyes to open up and realize, how on earth did I get here? You're standing in a spiritual desert. What am I doing here? When you find yourself there, just shout out a quick hallelujah because God's opened up your eyes to find out where you are. Because you might think that you can end with God. It's a mercy from God to reveal to, the, you, to, the, to reveal to you that you're not doing too well. That's the mercy of God to shake you from where you are, to move you to where you need to be. And to give you daily grace to have your heart collected together in worship of him. David is a complicated guy. We're going to see that all the way through his life. And right at the outset, week one, I want us to grab hold of that, that this guy's a fallen guy. He's a fallen king who we're going to be learning from and following and looking into his life and loving much of what he does. But we connect with him here in that we have this dual thing in our hearts. One is love for God and the other is wandering. And our cry and our prayer this morning is, Lord, would you unite our hearts to fear your name? And as we, as we close this morning, I want to wind your mind back to where I started with Samuel. And I want to 
I want to pray for us. I want you to pray for yourself this morning. There's enough of us here to, for me to know that different people may connect with different things. It may be that you haven't heard anything else yet. You're still stuck on point one, the grief and disillusionment about how your life is turning out. You just can't get past it. You can't get past it. No, God, I didn't expect it to be like this. I don't want it to be like this now. And you're stuck. And God wants to, in his mercy, get you unstuck this morning. God wants to get you unstuck because he is a better God than you are of your own life. And you may not have wanted your life to turn out the way it has, but everything that comes from his hand is kindness. It's kindness and it's mercy and it's transformative grace. It's not, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying it's necessary. And for some of you, you need God's mercy this morning to get unstuck. Some of you are just terrified of what full obedience would look like. You're worried about your reputation. You're worried about financial cost. You're worried about discomfort. You're worried about a million other things. I want to make you this absolute promise that following God in wholehearted obedience is worth it. It's worth more than anything it may cost you. All of your joy lies on the other end of obeying him wholeheartedly. Listen to me. All of your joy lies on the other end of you obeying him wholeheartedly. Don't think that you can shortchange that. You're not going to get the joy God wants for you in disobedience or this side of following him wholeheartedly. And for those of you who are just struggling with your heart, just feeling like it loves a million other things, let's pray that God would unite our hearts to love him this morning. Let's pray. Father, we love you. This morning we love that you are with us. You're always with us, but there's, there's times in you, it feels like you draw near to us and you pay us more particular attention. Maybe we're just more open and aware, um, having our hearts and minds focused on you. But we really have a sense that you're with us here this morning, speaking to our hearts, loving us in your word and longing to transform us. We pray that you would pour out your grace on us now through the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit. Pray for my friends who are just incapacitated and stuck with grief and disillusionment about how their lives are turning out and things that you have allowed into their lives. And I pray your mercy would wash over them and you would give them grace to see you as the loving Father that you are, that you're not shortchanging them, you're not holding out on them, you're not punishing them. You're loving them and you're leading them and their life is before you and you're working all things for their good. And for those who are crippled with fear, I pray that you put courage into us today. Courage to follow you. To be bold and courageous, knowing that you're with us. That obeying you is the best thing for us. And that you would help us. You would help us extend grace to others. And not allow our eyes to lie to us when we think of what's impressive. But when we look at our own hearts and we see such fracturing, we see such divided loves, we pray, Father, just like David prayed, would you unite our hearts to fear your name? Would you give us an undivided heart to love you, to worship you, and to walk in your ways?
We can't muster this up in ourselves. We just don't have the resources to transform our hearts the way they need to be. But you, you can. And I pray that you wouldn't let anyone, any one of us leave this place this morning without having our hearts captured by you again. Maybe some for the very first time. Some have been so afraid to even put their first, take the first step in putting full trust in Jesus Christ. And I pray as you draw them to yourself this morning, you would give them courage to say, yeah, I'm going to put my faith in Jesus this morning. We want to be a rejoicing people. We want to be people who live full of the joy of the Holy Spirit. And we know that that comes on the other side of us obeying you and on the other side of our hearts being knit together in worship of you. And we so long for joy. And so we ask you for your help. We thank you that you love us. And we're not asking you to do anything in us and for us that you don't long to do this morning. But as we sit in your presence, we pray you would come upon us now. And you, that you work in our hearts. Come and transform us. and Strengthen us in your grace.